You know, I can be a fairly competitive person at times, and this definitely comes into play with my parenting as I'm, you know, playing different sports with my kids or, or we're playing various games at home. You know, I've, I, I've always dealt with this competitive streak, even when my kids were little, of, of not letting them win really at all, to humble them to keep them in their places, you know? And this started when we were playing, like when they were little, little, little kids, the, the famous game of hide and go seek. I took that very seriously. Remember my kids were little, we'd, we'd play hide and go seek around the house. And I mean, I got elaborate. I, 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 would, I would hide behind curtains. I would, uh, I, I would like just, hide in the attic. I, I, would, I would do crazy things. One of my favorite pictures we have when my kids were little is me hiding in the baby crib, curled up inside the crib underneath the bumper on the side that, you know, those decorative bumpers you have to have if you want to be a good parent. Okay, those things. And so I'm, I'm like in the crib, I'm hiding in the crib and my kids are like 18 inches tall at this point. They can't see up into the crib. And I'm there hiding. And I remember when I would do this, I just took so much joy in this, hearing the little pitter-patter run around the house. The kids are looking for me. They'd come in the room. They're five inches from me, can't see me, can't find me. I just thought that was awesome. And they'd be running, have you seen him? No, I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? Where's dad? Where's dad? And, and they'd go, they'd ask my wife, where's dad? Have you seen dad? No, I haven't seen dad. And that just, this thing would go on for hours. Well, it, it, it would have gone on for hours had I let it, and that's when it occurred to me, you are a moron. Because literally, I'm, I'm stuck in places, I'm thinking, oh, this is great. And for the first five minutes, it was great. And then I realized, you know, because I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, they're never gonna find me. This is great, they're never gonna find me. And then after five minutes, it sets in, they're never gonna find me. <laughs> I might be stuck in this crib for the rest of my life, you know? And so what would I do? Well, same thing, same thing you do. Those of you who are parents, you play hide and go seek with your kids when they were little. What do you do? Well, you'd, you'd make a noise. You would stick out a foot from behind the curtains, right? You would knock on the wall. You, you would do something. And so I would make these weird noises. I, I would reenact them for you, but I don't remember what they were, but they were probably weird. Uh, some kind of like awful fake animal. So I can't remember exactly what I would do, but I would make these noises. I would stick my foot out. And, and what, what was I wanting at that point? I was wanting to be found, right? I was wanting to be seen. <laughs> I had been hidden for a time. And, and even though people were around in the room, my kids are there in the room, they, they, they didn't see me. They, they, they couldn't detect my presence, but, but I'd stick out a foot or I'd make a noise. I'd do something and eventually they would find me. And they were so proud of themselves to have found me. And then my kids got older and it became more difficult to win that game. And so we stopped playing it. And then now we're playing games that I can win at again, <laughs> which aren't very many, truthfully. <laughs> And we've been studying the book of Esther the past few weeks. It's a fascinating book of the Bible. It's actually a fascinating historical account of what happened during the days of the Persian Empire. It's, it's actually an incredibly significant account of how God 
preserved his people during a time of tremendous opposition and challenge. And what we've seen throughout the book of Esther is that God is the hidden hero of human history. And in God, in his power, his providence, God in his plan for his people, what was often it seemed hidden from view. Like a child being in the same room as a parent during the days of hide and go seek, they're, they're there in the room, but they can't, they can't see the mom or dad. They're, mom and dad are there, but they can't see them. And what has to happen? Well, there, there has to be, on behalf of the one who is hidden, a gracious act of revelation so that those who are in the room can see them and find them. And that's exactly how God has worked in the book of Esther, isn't it? So much of what God was doing here is, is unseen in the moment. We, we find that God has this incredible plan for his people. He's gonna protect them. He's gonna preserve them. He's gonna prove himself faithful to all the promises he had made to them in the past. But in the moment, it looks like God is not even around. He's not even there. We talked about the fact that in the entire narrative of Esther, God's never named. The only book of the Bible where God is not explicitly named, but yet we've seen him work powerfully and providentially. And we've seen God work through the recording of this narrative, through the recording of this historical account to show us how God is actively working and revealing himself to us. So that guess what? Those of us, even today, who are looking, who, who perhaps are wondering, maybe even at times when we're not looking and we're, we're overwhelmed with challenges or crisis, we become acutely aware of the fact of a God who has revealed himself to us, who wants us to seek him and to find him and to treasure him with all of our hearts. There is a hidden hero in Esther and it's the God of this universe. And we're seeing through this narrative how he's revealing his power and his providence in such a way that you cannot miss it, even though he's not named in the book. We, we started with, with the Persian Empire and King Xerxes, literally the most powerful man in the world at the time, and, and, and how he, he sought to humiliate his bride, his queen, and she would not submit to this humiliation. So he kicks her out and he, he, he initiates this Persian beauty pageant where he would bring in hundreds of women into his harem and eventually choose another queen. He did. He chose a woman by the name of Esther, who just happened to be a Jewish woman and whose cousin, a Jew, of course, was also there, located in the same city as the king's palace. And, and we saw how, how Mordecai, Esther's cousin, her fellow Jew, he, how he was, he was watching over her. And, and he was also at times watching over the king. And he exposes a plot that was in play to take the life of the king. And he communicates that to Esther and she communicates that to the king and his life is spared, but nothing happens. Mordecai is not honored anyway. The king, his life is spared, but it seems like life goes on as normal until you get to this guy named Haman who hated the Jewish people. And, and, and he was the prime minister of the Persian empire. He was second in command, right? He was, he was incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful. But as he walked around and people would bow and they would pay him, him homage, we noticed that Mordecai would not because of, of, of Haman's pride and of his disposition toward the Jewish people. And so Mordecai would not bow. And this just got under Haman's skin, so much so that he goes to the king and he says, hey, king, we, we've got a guy here who won't bow to me and he's a part of a people that I fear. 
could be a problem for us and for you. So let's just wipe out the entire Jewish race. And an edict went out across the Persian Empire, if you recall, and said, we're going to take out all the Jewish people, men, women, and children. Haman told the king, I'll bring tons and tons and tons of silver into your treasury as we loot these people whose lives we're going to take. And the king thought for some reason that was a good idea. And as this edict goes out, Mordecai is, of course, concerned. And he goes to Esther and he, he begs Esther to intercede. At first, she doesn't want to. And then eventually she does. And she intercedes on behalf of her people. And she does it in a very crafty way. She does it in a, in, in, in a very, very, uh, I, I think, strategic way. And it just so happens you remember that the very night before this, this request that Esther was going to make to the king, that the king couldn't sleep. And he, he sent for the history record and he wanted a little bit of history to be read. And so they were reading some history and they just so happened to turn to the page when the king's life was spared from this plot, this assassination plot from two of the men who worked in the harem. And the king says, wait a minute, was, was the person that saved my life ever honored? And they said, well, no, nothing's recorded that was done for him. He says, well, let, let's bring him in. Let's honor this man. And that man, of course, was Mordecai. So on the very day that Haman thought that he was going to be honored, remember coming to this king's banquet that Esther had set up, actually Mordecai was honored and Haman is humiliated. And eventually the plot of Haman himself and the intentions of Haman himself are, are exposed to the king. And the king ends up hanging Haman on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. <laughs> and God spared his people. And we saw last week how there's this time of rest. There's this season now where the Jewish people experience deliverance because Esther goes and intercedes one more time before the king, not just for Mordecai, of course, but for the entire Jewish race. And, and the king grants a request to where the Jewish people are spared. I mean, just an incredible story of God's providence, an incredible story of how behind the scenes God is working. And it doesn't look like it in the moment, perhaps. Maybe it seems to some as a random set of coincidental circumstances, but we know better. We know that even though God's not named in this book, what is he doing? He, 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 he is sticking out a foot. He's, he's, he's knocking on the wall here. He, he, he's communicating through this incredible narrative that he is the hidden hero of human history that he has a plan and a purpose. He has a design that he is accomplishing. And I just wanna share with you as we wrap up our series today, what, what happens in the very last chapter of Esther is actually only three verses, but we see here how not just the Jewish people are spared and saved, but we see how this guy by the name of Mordecai is truly honored. Let me share these with you, just the first three verses of Esther 10, it says, now King Xerxes imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores, and all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments are detailed in the account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him. And have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia, Mordecai the Jew, that he was second only to King Xerxes? Not only is Haman hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai, not only is the initial decree reversed that Haman had led King Xerxes to enact against the Jewish people. But now look, Mordecai himself is now exalted and elevated to the exact position that Haman once held. He's the prime minister of the Persian empire. 
And the book concludes that he was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all of his descendants. And we see God working in such a powerful way to protect and preserve his people and to prove his faithfulness to his promises. And as we wrap up the series, I just wanna give you a few takeaways that I think apply to you and me today in our culture, in our context, where it seems maybe even to us, frankly, that, that God's not at work, that he's not moving, maybe in your own life at times, maybe even right now, you're wondering, God, are you working? Are you moving? God, what are you doing? Are you there? The answer definitively is absolutely God is there. Absolutely God's faithful to his word. Absolutely God's faithful to his promises. Absolutely God is always working even when it's it seems like he is not because so much of what God's work is about is hidden from our view. So often he's working in ways that we can't fully grasp or can't fully understand in the moment. It's only with the benefit of hindsight we can look back and we can see it. But make no mistake, the God who worked in the Persian Empire in the days of, of Esther is the same God who's working today in our American context in our lives, yours and mine. And there's some things that we've learned throughout this study of history that I think apply to us. Let me give you a few of these. I encourage you to take them down. First of all, I just want to remind you this morning that kings rule over nations, but our God rules over all. Kings rule over nations, but our God rules over all. King Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world in the days of Esther. We've seen that. There were no limits to what... He could do, it seemed. I mean, after all, he's issuing decrees that could result in the abolishment of people groups. <laughs> he was a powerful man, one who is greatly feared by all. Even Esther, we see in the story at times, greatly fears Xerxes and even approaching him out of fear for her own life if he does not want to receive her. We see a man who is powerful, a man who has tremendous wealth, a man who has tremendous influence, but yet we are reminded that this great King Xerxes ruled over a great empire known as the Persian Empire, but his power has limits because his power is no power when you compare it to the power of the God of this universe. His plan is no plan when you compare it to the plan of the God of this universe. No, there are kings that rule nations, but we have a God that rules over all. Let me remind you even today that there is no political power, no political party, no political person that can thwart or hinder the will of our great God in this world. There's not a single person not a single power. Yeah, we celebrate that. Not a single party. Let me, let me prove it to you. Proverbs 21.1. I love this verse of scripture. The king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Let me say that again. The king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. It looks to us at times like the Lord is not at work. It can look to us at times like the Lord is not working and moving or accomplishing his plans or his purposes. To us, 
through our human vision, it looks like things are completely out of control, but make no mistake about it, no, every single king, every single president, every single prime minister, every single emperor, all of their hearts are like channels of water in the Lord's hand. He directs them however he chooses. There is no king or country that can hinder God's work through you and me. No matter how hostile our culture gets, no matter how difficult our days may be, we must be reminded of the fact that there is no person or power that can ever hinder the work of God through his people and through his bride, which is the church. Let me remind you of something that we've been talking about since we went into the pandemic, since March 15th, namely Matthew 16 and verse 18. Remember Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Whether the church of the Lord Jesus serves locally and primarily in Florida, California, New York, Iowa, China, Africa, Guatemala, Haiti, make no mistake about it, Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No president can thwart it, no party can thwart it, no election can thwart it, no kingdom can thwart it. No, we're reminded today that Kings rule over nations, but God rules over all. And I am so grateful for the work of Bell Shoals, even during a difficult season of life, a difficult season of ministry. There's anger, there's confusion, there's a need for clarity and integrity in our culture and our society. There's been this little thing known as a pandemic. <laughs> But I wanna tell you through the ministry of Bell Shoals, God is building his church. Since March 15th, check this out, we've had 59 people join Bell Shoals, align their hearts and their lives with the ministry of Bell Shoals. We have seen 17 people baptized since March 15th. And many of those weeks and months, of course, we weren't even open. Well, we were open, we just weren't open. And most significantly, listen to me, Bell Shoals, we've seen 140 people put their faith in Christ over the last seven months. And we praise the Lord for that. Jesus is building his church and no pandemic will ever stand or stop it. Stand against it or stop it. Jesus is building his church and no matter who wins the election, he's gonna keep on building his church. Jesus is building his church and no matter the chaos, no matter the anger, no, 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 no matter the injustices, Jesus is building this church and the church is gonna to continue to be and Bell Shoals is gonna to continue to be on the front lines of gospel engagement, compassionate, loving, biblical, truth-filled engagement to reveal, to show what is hidden to many, but revealed to us this great God of the universe who is in control of all things and who has lovingly sent his son to die for our sins. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we exist. We'll see here in, in the next few weeks, more people coming to, to, to be baptized and to publicly identify themselves with King Jesus. We're seeing God work and God move in amazing ways. And even though we can't fully understand how he's working and how he's moving, we know for a fact that he is. And in the chaos of your life at times and mine and collectively our culture and our society right now and what will be, I'm sure, chaotic and a little bit crazy over the next month and over the next few months, we know we rest in this truth that our great God is in control of all things. Now, kings rule over nations, kings like Xerxes, 
but our God rules over all. As you take a deeper dive into the people that we're connecting with, you find that God's bringing families to Bell Shoals. You find that most of the people that we're connecting with are people who aren't part of a church, completely unchurched, de-churched, in desperate need of the love of Jesus. We're not just swapping sheep. (laughs) We're not just trading memberships. No, we're connecting with people who are far from God, a God who it seems recently was hidden from them, but now they're getting a clear glimpse of. And when you really get a clear glimpse of this great God and his love for you, his plan for you, his purpose for you, you come to see his beauty and his majesty and his glory and and by his grace and his initiative, invite him into your life. Listen, kings rule over nations, but we have a God who rules over all. This is our confidence. Secondly, let me, let me just remind you of this, that power, prosperity, or praise cannot be your identity. Man, this service is clearly in the book of Esther. We see first and foremost this hidden hero of human history, God working despite the, the emperor, despite who's king, despite who's president, despite which party's ruling the house and the Senate kind of thing, you know, to put it in our, in our context, we, we see a God who's, who's ruling over all, who's accomplishing his plan, his purposes, but we also see that there's a danger in the palace. For those of us who are blessed to be in a, an affluent culture, who, who are raised in a culture that loves the trappings of the palace, we are reminded in Esther that power, prosperity, or praise, it cannot be your identity. And Haman is this central figure, one of the central figures in Esther. And you see something incredibly profound in Haman's life. Let me remind you of this. He had power. He had wealth. He had privilege. But it wasn't enough. Because for Haman... He had located his identity, not in his wealth, not in his power, not in his influence, but in his praise, his own praise. He wanted to be praised as the king was praised. He wanted to be esteemed as the king was esteemed. He wanted to be viewed with the same respect and admiration as King Xerxes. That's why when King Xerxes was was seeking to honor this man who had spared his life, of course, Haman thought it was him. Remember the king went to Haman and said, hey, I'm gonna throw a little party for somebody I need to honor. And remember Haman was like, well, who else would the king want to honor more than me? (laughs) I mean, I can see Haman's social media pages, right? Well, king's throwing a big banquet for somebody. Can't wait to see who that is. (laughs) And come to find out it wasn't him. But before Haman knew that a party wasn't for him, the king said, how should we honor this person needs to be honored? And he's thinking it's him. And what did he ask for? He didn't ask for more money. He didn't ask for like more territories to rule over, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Like, what did he ask for? He said, well, let the man, let him be put on the king's horse, cloaked in the king's royal garments and let him be paraded through the town and honored as the king is honored. Isn't it interesting what the human heart leads us to think at times about identity and fulfillment that, you know what, if you just had a little more money, that would be enough. And then maybe you get a little bit more money and you look around at somebody else who has a little bit more money and you think, well, maybe if I had a little bit more than more, it would be enough. You know, if I had more affirmation, if I had more praise, more accolades, if I had more power, whatever it is, the human heart is always deceiving us to think that, you know what, if I just had more 
then I would be fulfilled. If I just had more, I would be happy. And, and here's the thing that you learn in the life of Haman, that you'll never find true identity, true purpose, and true fulfillment inside the palace. In our culture today, listen to me, you'll never find true meaning, true fulfillment, true purpose through wealth, through power, through influence, through praise. You can't get enough likes on Facebook or Instagram to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. There aren't enough dollars in the world to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. What you find when you tie your identity to these things is the same thing that King Solomon found, a man who had more than anybody else. When King Solomon had all of these things, what did he say at the end of his life? You know, he said, there was a time, I, a season, I, I set my heart on wealth, on women, on power, on influence. And he said at the end of his life, what do you say? All of these things can be summarized in one word. What was the word? Vanity. To chasing after the wind. You're always trying to grab it and you never, you never get it. Nothing wrong with being blessed. Nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with having friends. Nothing wrong with having influence. That's not the point. The point is that if your self-worth is measured by your net worth, you'll never have true self-worth. The point is, if your self-esteem is measured by others' esteem and how they esteem you, you will never truly have self-esteem. Listen, in order to be free from this rat race and this chasing after the wind, in order to have true peace and true meaning and true fulfillment, you have to find it outside the palace. You have to look to someone and something that is far more profound than anything you find, so to speak, inside the palace. And that position, that wealth, that power, that praise. That was Mordecai's point to Esther. Remember, let me show you these famous verses, really kind of the climax of the book when he's urging Esther to intercede on behalf of his people and her people. Remember, she was fearful of her life. She was fearful that the king would not receive her. And remember what Mordecai said to her. Let me show you again. He says, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, because as we've already said, God has a plan and a purpose that no kingdom can thwart, but you and your fam father's family will be destroyed. And so who knows, perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, you've gotta be willing to risk the palace to save your own life. And that is such a good word for those of us who are living in 21st century America. Well, we are taught from our earliest of age, ages in terms of our culture that, that you get fulfillment and identity and meaning from things like the affirmation, the praise of other people. You get it from, from, from affluence. You get it from, from your work, your, your, your successes. And, and what you come to find the, the, the longer you live on this earth is that all of these things cannot bring true meaning and fulfillment and they cannot satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. They just can't. If they could, listen to me, then the Hollywood elite would be the most happy, well-functioning people on planet Earth. And I don't know what you're seeing when you look west, but what I'm seeing is a whole lot of dysfunction. I, somebody agreeing with me today, all right. I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm not picking on anybody, of course. I'm just saying as an example, look, 
I mean, I mean, just look at our culture. Look at the wealthiest people. Look at the most privileged people. Look at the people that our society esteems as like being role models and having it all together. On the, and you look and you think, okay, if I had wealth, if I had power, if I had a million Instagram followers, if I had whatever it is that you feel like, like Haman, whatever it is in your life that you feel like this is the identity streak in me that I have to fulfill. And, and you look at people who have it and what you find is that so often they're absolutely dysfunctional. Some of them turn to suicide. Some, some of them turn to substance abuse. You, you just see in their families at times, their kids, this, this radical dysfunction. And, you, and, and then if, if you're really paying attention, listen to me, if, you're, if you wanna dig beneath the surface and actually get to the core issues, what you find are people who were not satisfied by the things that our culture tell us that we can be satisfied by. That was Haman's problem. He was the second in command of the greatest empire in the, in the world at that time. He had wealth, he had power, he had privilege. There was one single man that wouldn't bow to him. And, and Haman said at one point when he went home to his family, I cannot be happy with Mordecai being like this to me. Really? He's one guy. I mean, Haman wouldn't let it go. <laughs> well, listen, that's, that's our problem. We have the same issue that we're, we're always running to these secondary issues to satisfy the primary need of our lives. And so I just want to remind us today, maybe this is, this is something that you need to hear. Maybe this meets you where you are today. I know this has been a convicting word for me over, over my life and studying the book of Esther that, that listen to me, that Christianity is an upside down identity. I'm gonna tell you something, it's countercultural. You ready? You're never gonna see this in American culture. Christianity's an upside down identity. Check this out. In order to save your life, you know what you have to do? You have to lose it. You know what you have to do if you really wanna be honored? You have to humble yourself. Now, does that make sense to any of you? What's the message of Christianity? You wanna save your life, you have to lose it. You wanna be honored, you have to be humble. You, you want to be praised, you zip your lip and silence your thumbs and you let another do it and not yourself. Christianity is an upside down way of living your life. To save my life, I lose it. To be honored, I have to be humbled. To have adoration and affirmation, I just keep going and let it come from another and not myself. That's so opposite of our culture. Listen, I, you know, there's a thing now, you can look this up, called humble bragging. Are you familiar with humble bragging? It's something we do on social media. It's pretty cool. Let me give you an example. These are actual social media examples of humble bragging. Somebody wrote on Twitter, I'm not kidding you, I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? That's a humble brag, right? Um, I was walking on a red carpet and somebody put gum down. I mean, uh, who puts gum on a red carpet, okay? Well, yeah, most of us aren't walking on a red carpet unless our house was built in the 60s, all right? So, you know, we get it, okay? We get it, you're a celebrity, okay? Somebody put on social media, um, will Twitter be available for me in Paris, Milan, or the Maldives? I hope so, because it won't be in Hong Kong or Singapore. Okay, dude, you travel, we get it, okay? Okay, you travel, okay? Humble brags, okay? Somebody put, I love this. This is an actual, actual tweet. It's great to watch an expert speak and know like 90% of what he is saying. 
You are so smart, okay? <laughs> uh, this, you know what the scripture says? Let another person praise you and not yourself. Man, that's not easy. You know what, you know what Jesus said? You, you, you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You want to be my disciple? You need to lay down your life and pick up my cross and follow after me. Can I give you a better word than the word of Haman here? In order for you to have true identity, meaning and purpose and fulfillment, you have to look outside the palace and you have to look to a God. Check this out. A God who created you in his image. A God who created you with a conscience. A God who created you with a capacity to know him and to love him. And a God who pursues you and who so radically loves you that he gave his only begotten son at his own expense to die for your sin, your rebellion, to your foolishness. And he rose from the dead, Jesus did, on the third day to, to, to achieve victory, eternal life for all who believe, okay? through his resurrection, his triumph over sin and death and hell. And therefore, here's true identity. Recognizing, you know what, that I don't have it all together. Recognizing that, you know what, I am, I am tempted to, to, to make temporal earthly things eternal things and significant things. And I need the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance and the identity of a God who loves me, who treasures me, who gifts me, who's created me in his image and who has secured for me an eternal home in glory. And when you have that identity, when you have that knowledge, when you have that acceptance, you don't need the acceptance of everybody else. When you have that hope, when you have that joy, when you have that security, it frees you to be generous with what the Lord gives to you because you realize you ain't taking any of it with you. You realize, man, no, it is so much better to be a blessing to others, to be generous. It frees you to forgive. It frees you to love. It frees you to see yourself as God sees you. Because when you come to Jesus for your salvation, this God of the universe looks at you and he no longer sees you for your flaws and your foolishness and your sin and your rebellion. He sees you in the same way he sees his son. And that's why the Bible refers to Christ followers as more than just men and women who have made a profession of faith. Guess what? You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It doesn't matter how many likes you get on your social media page. It doesn't matter you know, where your income ranks in terms of those in your life and those around you. It doesn't matter how you're perceived by your coworkers and your friends. You know, you know what matters in terms of your identity? What matters is how the God of this universe sees you and accepts you and loves you. That's our hope. And so what do we learn here? That we have a king who rules over all things, not just, not, not just a, an individual king that rules over a nation. We have a God who rules over all. We see that power and prosperity and praise, it cannot be our identity. No, our identity has to be tied to a relationship and our king who is outside the palace. And finally, listen, I just wanna remind you of this, that the Bible, Esther in particular, and really all of human history, listen, they point us to Jesus. They point us to this savior, they point us to his ministry. I don't want you just to look at Esther and see Esther. No, I want you to look at Esther and I want you to see moving forward how, how this narrative, how this historical account foreshadows the life and ministry of Jesus. 
Jesus himself said this in John 5. I love this. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, but they testify about me. Jesus said, you're looking to a religious system to save you and you think you've got it in the Old Testament. No, let me tell you something. No, 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 no. The Old Testament's not an end to itself. It's pointing to me. And Esther is pointing to Jesus in a few ways. First of all, that Jesus is a better king. He's not like Xerxes. Guess what? King Jesus rules with righteousness and justice. King Jesus is a better mediator than even Esther was. He ensures access to the king of glory. He even now is interceding on your behalf and mine. He is a better king. He is a better mediator. And listen, yes, he is a better savior and even better savior than Mordecai proved to be. He secures rest, Jesus does, for all peoples and all nations. This is the ministry of Jesus. And we're mindful of what he said when he issued these famous words, come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Eternal rest. Complete rest. From our enemies, from the weariness of life, from our struggle with sin, Jesus gives us Rest, And this is what we have foreshadowed for us in Esther. And ultimately, we have it pictured for us in Revelation. Let me share this with you. Revelation 14, check this out. John, looking to this eternal kingdom, says, And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the side of the holy angels and the side of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and ever. By the way, this is a reference to the fact that there is eternity awaiting all of us. Even in this place of torment, we know as hell or in a place of glory, we know as heaven. John tragically is describing this torment. He says, there is no, check this out, how is it described? There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. What is John saying? Don't get so fixed on the temporal that you lose sight of the eternal in your struggle now, in your weariness now, even in the days of discouragement now. No, be reminded you have a king and a kingdom that, that, that is ruling and reigning over all. You have a hope that has occurred for you in glory. You have a future that is fixed for you. And, and there is nothing that could ever happen to you in this life that will ever, ever, ever rob you of what God has for you in the present and the future. He said, let this be a means of endurance for you to keep going, to live for eternal things, to honor the Lord. He said, no, 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 it's worth it. Hang in there. Because then he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, because they will rest from their lives labors since their works will follow them. No, there is rest to come. There is final victory to come. And the final victory that Mordecai seems to secure for the Jewish people in the days of Esther, we know wasn't final at all. <laughs> because after the Persians came the Greeks and then the Romans. And you know, this wasn't a final rest. No, this is a rest in the days of Esther that's pointing us forward to a day of rest in a new heaven and a new earth because that rest will be final and complete.